The failure of drug war is glaringly obvious to judges, cops, wardens, prosecutors, and millions more now calling for decriminalization, legalization, the end of prohibition. Let us investigate the century of lies. Hello and welcome to Century of Lies. I'm your host, Doug McVeigh. Our first segment today deals with subjects that are rather personal for me, aging and substance use. On December 14th, 2023, the Senate Committee on Aging held a hearing entitled Understanding a Growing Crisis, Substance Use Trends Among Older Adults. Let's hear from one of the witnesses, William Stauffer, Executive Director of the Pennsylvania Recovery Organization Alliance. In 2018, I was here to speak about the impact of opioid use disorders on older adults. As my uh, esteemed colleagues on the panel have talked about, these are issues that relate to uh, the wider and broader range of substance use disorders as well. Perhaps one of the most important issues that we need to talk about is stigma. Negative perceptions about people with substance use disorders is something that we're essentially swimming in as a society. Very recently, in February of 2023, my organization, PROA, and an organization called Elevist released a study of uh, a stigma in healthcare, the largest such survey done in the United States. And what we found is that roughly one in three healthcare providers um, believe that people like me can and do recover. We have to think about this. Um, healthcare, our healthcare system is where people go for help. And if only roughly one in three healthcare providers think that we do recover, people get that message. They're not going to go for help. We found that same type of level of stigma across other, uh, uh, the rest of society. Until we, we understand what the, tr- what the truth is and what the research shows us, which is when people get what they need, the probable outcome is recovery. The key is that people need the treatment and recovery support that they need to recover. And when they do, just like in my life, uh, people recover. Stigma is so such a huge issue um, that it keeps our issues uh, invisible. When someone around us, a loved one, a family member, or a neighbor, dies from an alcohol-related fall, the underlying issue doesn't get recorded. When someone dies from a substance use-related medical condition, the root cause doesn't get recorded. So as, as Chairman Casey identified in his opening statement, the people, the problems, and the solutions remain invisible to our society. I am honored that this committee has moved this issue forward. It is so important. One of the reasons why this is so important is because there's going to be a whole lot more older adults in America. This year, the kids of 1968, the 20-year-old kids from 1968 are going to turn 75. Their substance use over a lifetime was at a greater rate than the generations that came before them but consistent with the generations that have come after them. So we have a whole lot more need coming at us. The median age in America in 1980 was 30. Last year, the median age for Americans was 38.9. In my home state of Pennsylvania, the the median age last year was just under 41 years old, the oldest in the nation. This is very important because there's going to be a whole lot more people in need And the work of this committee is critically important to raise this issue and to continue to move things forward. We're going to have to think fairly critically about what we do. Um, It's important that we think about the impact of the the pandemic and the relationship between things like loneliness and make sure that we connect older adults in ways that we have not before. 
We have to understand that the issues of an older adult who needs services are complex. They often required highly structured care. And the same type of care is in competition because unfortunately substance use itself has become more complex. Things like xylazine and fentanyl have created demand for uh, highly structured care in ways that uh, place competition on perhaps the, the level of care that has the uh, that we have the least of in the United States, which is that type of hospital-based substance use treatment. Our workforce, uh, is it, we have workforce shortages. Because some of these centers require uh, complex needs and highly trained staff, um, they are under a particular focus um, of needing people to staff them that can serve this population. Many of those workers are still retiring, are, are, are currently retiring as well. And we need to think about substance use disorders in a different way. You see, when I hit five years of recovery, I had about an 85% chance of staying in recovery for the rest of my life. We need to change the way that we think about substance use disorders and provide people care and support just like we would other chronic conditions like, uh, like cancer, where people get regular checkups. If we do that for older adults, we can see that they have value and they can uh, provide the kinds of things that they need to do for our community. Lastly, what we need to do is think about how we look at community. I would suggest that what we should do is create an older adult recovery community corp. You see, there's a lot of aging adults in recovery. They're looking for purpose. In fact, all of us across our society need purpose. And so we should be looking into our community and actually, actually using the talents and skills of those in our community and harness them to support each other. Perhaps, well, I would say this to this committee, the two most fundamental things that have changed my life, one was recovery. I got into recovery at age 21. I like to think of myself as a formerly young person still in recovery. That changed the course of my life. The other thing was that I spent much of my life talking to people about issues they experienced in their own lives. I've never met a person who didn't have talent and skills that they wanted to share with other people. What we should be doing in America, not just for older adults, but for everybody, is finding a way to harness uh, the talents and skills of our people. We're reaching the point where roughly 25 percent in, in 2060, there will be 98 million Americans, or one in four, over the age of 65. One of the challenges that we've had in America is that we've, we value youth and vitality. We, people spend their whole lives developing talents and skills and resources, and then they get to older adulthood and they're looking for purpose. We can't afford to squander the talents of our older adults in the ways that we have. And if we did something like created a, an older adult recovery community corp to pair older adults in recovery to others who need help, We'll be saving a lot of lives, even those who are in the helping roles, because we all want hope, purpose, and connection. This is going to be very important uh, for all of us to think about, and I am grateful uh, for you and the work that you have done to do things like uh, consider ways to, to support our infrastructure, uh, develop uh, the kinds of infrastructure that we need. We need to invest in our substance use workforce for older adults so that when people need help, it's there to help them. We need to fund the full containment of care. As my colleagues have talked about, 
so far here. Um, if we don't fund it, it, they can't be provided. The time to do so is now. There has been great, uh, great progress has been made, but as my colleague has noted, uh, reimbursement rates are still too low. We have a long way to go. And most importantly, I would want to note in my home state of Pennsylvania, Governor Shapiro developed a 10-year strategic plan. And in this plan, they're looking at the, the needs of our older adult communities in ways that focus all of the stakeholders on identifying the needs, barriers, and talents of our older adults. This is a model for how we should move forward. Mr. Stroffer, we're, we're way over on time. I'm sorry. Thank you. Uh, this we, is a model that we should follow. Thank I'll you. Move, I'll move to questions, and you'll have the first question. I really appreciate you sharing your own personal story here. And I also appreciate the experience you've gained from that um, in, in the, the challenge we have on substance use disorder. You talked about in your testimony about stigma that I mentioned in my opening that prevents older adults from reporting that they have a problem. Stigma also uh, prevents providers from asking the right questions about substance use. And then finally, family members are often prevented from, due to stigma, from seeking help for a loved one. You also share that the, sub, the SUD treatment system is not built for older adults, and we need to move towards an age-friendly service infrastructure. Please tell us about some of the unique stigma that older adults might face either receiving or accessing substance use disorder treatment and how we can address these and how age-friendly care infrastructure can help. Thank you, and uh, I will keep my comments brief. Um, by, by creating a plan to focus on the needs of older adults, we're creating a venue where we can talk about difficult issues. By talking about these difficult issues, I, I think um, that we're similar to how people, when they face difficult issues, the things that come out of that are are the opportunities and our strengths. By focusing on this issue, what we're, what we're going to be able to get is we're going to find the talents and skills of our older adults. The thing that's keeping that as a, the barrier to that is the stigma from doing that. So creating a place where we can talk about this in an open, in an open way is the way that we're going to be able to uh, move beyond the stigma and treat older adults in the way that they should be. Thank you. Thanks very much. I'll move next to Ms. Steinberg. In your testimony, you gave a helpful overview of recent improvements to the Medicare program, thanks to Congress and the administration. I've long advocated for improving mental health services and supports for all Americans. And as you mentioned, I introduced the, the Moore Savings Act, which would require the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation to test a model to offer uh, opioid treatment and recovery services provided under Medicare without cost sharing, among other policies. We've got to do more to help older adults and families access mental health and substance use disorder care that they need. Could you speak to us about the remaining gaps in traditional Medicare for older adults trying to access treatment for substance use disorders? Thank you, Senator. Um, yes, the main remaining gaps in traditional Medicare are the lack of parity in Parts A and B. 
um, the lack of coverage of specialty community-based substance use disorder treatment facilities that allow individuals to get the to get the benefits that are otherwise covered under Medicare, like screening, um, outpatient services, intensive outpatient, and partial hospitalization. Residential treatment is still not covered in Medicare, although Representative Underwood will be introducing a bill that would expand coverage to this area. And then the reimbursement rates, as my colleague noted, are still a problem across the board, but especially for clinical social workers, mental health counselors, and marriage and family therapists, who are still reimbursed at 75% of the physician fee schedule, even though non-medical physician, non-medical physician practitioners, medical non-physician practitioners are reimbursed at 85% of that rate. Um, so in all, there are a lot of issues that need to be addressed. Parity would help to address all of them, although there are some individual legislative and regulatory changes that still need to happen. That was William Stauffer, LSW Executive Director of the Pennsylvania Recovery Organization Alliance. You also heard committee chair Senator Robert Casey, Democrat of Pennsylvania, and Deborah Steinberg, JD, Senior Health Policy Attorney with the Legal Action Center. They were at a hearing December 14th entitled Understanding a Growing Crisis, Substance Use Trends Among Older Adults. You're listening to Century of Lies. I'm your host, Doug McVeigh. Let's turn now to Europe. The European Monitoring Center on Drugs and Drug Addiction and the European Center for Disease Prevention and Control recently released a new joint guidance report that explores good public health practices that can support effective policies to reduce bloodborne infections such as HIV, hepatitis B, and hepatitis C. They held a launch event for that guidance on December 4th, 2023. We're going to hear from one of the speakers. Matt Southwell is a project executive with the European Network of People Who Use Drugs. I think we should always remember that when we're going back to harm reduction, harm reduction started with people who use drugs. No, the first needle and syringe program was run in 1982 in Rotterdam by the Junkiesbund. It was run in response not to HIV, but actually to hepatitis B. And uh, I think we should you know, remember that much innovation in harm reduction comes from the drug using uh, community. I think it's very inciting that there's a, you know, the, the new global aid strategy puts this real focus on community-led responses, and that can be seen uh, in these guidelines uh, as well. I think the challenge of these types of guidelines is that they're, they're properly driven by the hard data. So there's you no know, the very scientific process of evaluating what data is out there. The challenge is that many of the community-led models aren't always so well represented in that hard data. And so therefore, that storyline, uh, that critical storyline can be invisible. However, I think this combination of using a Delphi study as well, so capturing the voices of experts and in making sure that people who use drugs were part of that expert consultation has allowed some of the softer data, the softer experience also to be reflected in these new guidelines. And for me, that was in a very interesting uh, process to be part of and to understand how that model works and can complement the sort of hard data. It's not an argument against hard data, it's about saying we need to complement it. I think we need to also look at that the difference between the in-principle commitment to community-led responses and then the reality of community-led responses. I mean, we have a global aid strategy committing to you know, 60% to 80% of future uh, hep C prevention, HIV prevention should come from community-led organizations. 
if we have 1% of funding in Europe going to community-led organisations, I would be surprised. So we have a huge difference between the aspiration for communities to be more involved and the funding that just doesn't come to us. Why doesn't it come to us? Well, there's a lot of different reasons for that, but stigma and discrimination, criminalisation, and also professional organisations holding desperately on to hard-won funding uh, and in a shrinking funding environment, it's very hard to see how we see this substantial transition of funding to people to community-led organisations. How's that going to take place? That's going to be very challenging if we have to fight our professional partners for their hard-won funding so that we can play a, a stronger role. But I think that hard conversation needs to take place. No, you can't just say we support community-led involvement, we want communities to be involved and then not to invest in that process. No, the European network of people who use drugs operates on 150,000 euros a year to work in you know, 25 countries. I mean, it's a just it's just unfeasible to really see us playing a substantial role if we don't have the funding. And the reality is our community-led organization in country, they rely substantially on Euroempod to provide them with funding. So it's not like many drug user groups have significant funding in their own right. There's some exceptions, you know, the German network Jess or the wonderful Metzeneris project working with women in Barcelona. Some of them do have funding, but they really are the exception rather than the rule. I think the other thing we need to look at is, look, we're seeing a constant evolution of, of drug use. Now, drug use is never static. So, no, and who tells you about the changes in drug use? It's the community. We're the ones best positioned to talk to you about the changing impact of different drugs, different ways of taking drugs on the ground. And for me, this is not a competition. It's a partnership. It's how do we work collaboratively together to deliver these wonderful new guidelines that so clearly set out the evidence. But we have to have the funding to back that. We also need the legal environment to do the work. You know, we're working constantly in a context where we're criminalized. In my hometown of Bath, you know, we work with local drug suppliers and local drug users to run a peer-to-peer -peer needle and syringe program. We're the one area in the UK that has bucked the trend of reducing needle and syringe coverage during the COVID-19 pandemic because we work with the drug using community to give out needles and syringes. How much funding do we have to run that service? Zero. We get equipment from the local system, but we deliver it on a voluntary basis. We can't even get basic funding to run a peer support program to educate our peers. At the same time, funding is going constantly to providers who aren't delivering always. And I think you know, that becomes a very challenging context of having workers sitting in agencies, often not seeing that many people, while we're out in the community doing the work without resources. And I think that does create ill feeling. And I think we need to start to have greater equity in how money is shared, how work is shared, and how we contribute to each other and support each other in this important work. And just finally, I think the other function that we can really provide, I'm, I'm sitting in uh, Budapest at a meeting of the Correlation European Harm Reduction Network, where we're discussing how do we gather data? How do we create the evidence base to effectively assess the response? And the you know, new dynamic we're talking about is how do we gather community-led data? So it's not just harm reduction providers, policymakers giving data, it's also the community itself giving data. So for me, it's collaboration, it's funding, 
and it's also supporting the key role that community-led organizations play in the response. I, I think the, the the challenge, I think, to start with, uh, to repeat myself, is, is funding. I think both for harm reduction. I mean, uh, we have a very restricted amount of funding available for harm reduction. Uh, that really makes it very challenging for drug services to reach people who inject drugs um, because no, people, you can't just open a service and expect people to turn up to use it particularly the most marginalized members of our community need to be reached out to we need to use innovation to engage people and take services to people uh, we've seen really pioneering work for example euro input is about to uh, uh, publish a, a new set of guidelines where we document the really amazing work of the Prolar Drug User Group in Norway and also GAT in Portugal, where they're really using community-led organisations to uh, take Hep C testing and treatment out to people who use drugs. They're engaging people in the communities where people are using and then drawing them through into treatment rather than expecting people to go through a very complex pathway of using multiple agencies but actually you know with the prolar model you know, taking a bus out to open drug scenes taking the whole process right through to the start of treatment being done in a, in a mobile bus and then connecting people into the healthcare system using peer workers to then support people to, to so they can adhere with treatment. I think we too often talk about the barriers or the inabilities of people who inject drugs to engage in the system rather than looking at why the system is so difficult to engage with. And I think that's where community models can be so effective. I was really disturbed today to hear our Swedish um, drug user group talking about the challenges of promoting hepatitis C testing with people on opiate agonist maintenance treatment. Now in Sweden, where there's a very restricted model of uh, OAMT, we see um, people fearful to test. Why? Because if they test, ask for a test for, for hepatitis or HIV within OAMT, they are then acknowledging that they're actively using drugs and then they will face greater restrictions um, to how the, the, they will be asked to pick up on a daily basis. They will then have to be supervised in their treatment. Now, this type of uh, disconnected system is really concerning to me and I think we need to find uh, greater ways forward. I think the wider legal environment remains a critical barrier. Now, while we are being pursued by the police, while we're being... Uh, no, uh, uh, seen as criminals within the system, it makes it very uh, no disconnected that on one hand we're being invited to engage within a public health response, mm. and on the other hand we're being criminalised, tracked down. These two things jar with each other. Um, so, um, what else? Um, yeah, and I think the other issue is the sort of political will. I mean, I'm very, uh, Professor Alex Stevens from Kent University has written a very new, interesting book on, on drug policy. And he challenges this concept of evidence-based policy. And what he says is it's not about evidence-based because if it was evidence-based policy, we would be doing drug law reform, we would be doing harm reduction, we'd be doing humane drug treatment. Why don't we? Well, no, we need to actually care about the population that is the subject of these guidelines. And the problem is, I think, with the rise of populism, 
People who use drugs are a very convenient uh, population to scapegoat uh, for politicians. And I'm mindful of uh, Sam Friedman being on this call, who really helped us understand this concept of of scapegoating, where a particular population is used by uh, malign politicians to whip up negative sentiment against our community. And that, again, makes it very challenging to have a sensible conversation about how does society benefit from harm reduction? How does a society benefit from good quality drug treatment? And how do we start to move forward with new enhanced harm reduction, like drug consumption rooms, like drug checking? And logically, how do we create an environment of decriminalization as a meaningful stepping stone to ending the ridiculous war on drugs that makes public health responses so difficult to implement? I think the real challenge that we've got to address is the sort of nature of changing drug trends. I think the, and I'm very proud of the work uh, that I've been doing with uh, UNODC, uh, UNAIDS, and WHO promoting. Uh, the new stim- the, their stimulant guidelines around the world and championing the response to people who use stimulants around the world. And I think that's a, a, a key issue that we ha- haven't always uh, addressed effectively. And also I'm particularly concerned by the sort of certain uh, beginning of drug-related deaths associated with synthetic opioids. We've seen 35 deaths recently in the UK, 30 people dying in Birmingham, five people dying in Bristol. Now, I met some of the drug users uh, in Bristol because we're doing a stimulant project there. Now, one peer told me that he saw three people go into a local park together. They were carrying naloxone with them, but because they injected all at the same time, all three of them died. And this is the nitrazines contaminating the heroin supply. Uh, uh, Dublin has seen 35 deaths all in one week. Now, is this the beginning of a a US, Canadian style synthetic opioid contamination? And we're seeing the Taliban uh, doing what the world has asked, which is destroying the heroin supply. Now, if we're seeing 95% of the last year's crop destroyed, we have 85% of uh, our heroin in Europe comes from Afghanistan. No, where, where, where is that? The criminal gangs are not just going to stop their income. That I, I really fear that we're going to see um, no synthetic opioids contaminating the heroin supply, poisoning the heroin supply, and we're just not ready to deal with it. No, that means we've got to think about drug consumption rooms. It means we've got to think about safe supply. It means we've got to think about drug checking. We have to be bold if we're going to be facing this type of epidemic. When I see the trauma being faced by my peers in North America, I'm horrified at the thought that we could be about to face a similar uh, poisoned heroin supply in Europe. And so I really think enhanced heroin supply isn't just aspirational, it's absolutely essential and we have to be prepared. We can't wait for this to happen. We have to be ready for it to happen. Yeah, look, I I, I mentioned uh, Professor Alex Stevens' work from Kent University, and I think this really starts to speak about Evidence is really important and professionally, you know, we all need to respond with the evidence. But actually, that's not what changes politicians' minds. It's not what changes the, the, the general population's minds. No, it is actually a much more emotional response. It's much more understanding uh, feelings. And if those feelings come from you know, dirty, scummy drug users, dirty junkies, how do we get them out of our society? No, that, that's a very difficult position then to argue for 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 funding. 
if we can start to humanize people who use drugs and i think that is best done by us as a community stepping up it's why for example i went from being a professional head of drug treatment services and decided to come out publicly about my drug use because i realized uh, in the late 1990s that this wasn't just a public health struggle it's a political struggle now the fight for human rights is critical to people and people uh, and politicians saying we are invested in supporting this group of our very marginalized citizens to have access to health, to have access to the transformation that humane drug treatment can offer in people's lives. And that that can also benefit our society. When people are drawn back in, that benefits everyone. That was Matt Southwell, project executive with the European Network of People Who Use Drugs, speaking at the launch event December 4th, 2023, of a new guidance report from the European Monitoring Center on Drugs and Drug Addiction and the European Center for Disease Prevention and Control that explores good public health practices to support effective policies to reduce bloodborne infections such as HIV, hepatitis B, and hepatitis C. And for now, that's it. Thank you for joining us. This has been Century of Lies. I've been your host, Doug McVeigh. Find this edition of Century along with an archive of past shows at the Drug Truth Network website, drugtruth.net. We'll be back in a week with 30 more minutes of news and information about drug policy and the failed war on drugs. For now, this is Doug McVeigh saying so long. For the Drug Truth Network, this is Doug McVeigh asking you to examine our policy of drug prohibition, the Century of Lies. Drug Truth Network programs archived at the James A. Baker III Institute for Public Policy. 